I was sitting here uh, trying to remember how far it was from Nazareth to Capernaum. Uh, and uh, so I looked it up on the internet. It was very interesting. I wish I'd have found that map. Uh, I wish I'd have found that map before I found this map. Oh, I haven't showed it to you yet. Before I show you this map. Uh, it's a little distorted because I made it to the, the, the distorted width. But you can see Galilee, and you can see Nazareth there in the red, and you see Capernaum. Uh, and there's a guy on here that I, I just found on the internet while I was supposed to be singing. And uh, he said that in 2007, a hiking enthusiast and a Christian made a trail, a hiking trail that goes from Nazareth to Capernaum. And you can take your sleeping bags and your camping gear and you can hike the whole distance of it. And he said much of the trip, he felt like he was still back home in Wisconsin until one morning he could hear the call to prayer and he realized he was in a primarily Arab country. Uh, which was a little uh, rude awakening for him, thinking that he was in Wisconsin, and he thought, I'm not in Wisconsin anymore. But in case you're wondering, the walk, the walk from Nazareth to Capernaum is approximately 40 miles. So it's a pretty good distance. I thought, you know, when I looked it up this morning, I was thinking, well, it'd be about 13 miles, but it wasn't. It was 40 miles. 75 kilometers is what I think they said. So we're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 4 again, <clears throat> Lord willing, this week, and hopefully my, uh, my uh, voice will hold up, give you an idea of where we're at. Jerusalem is to the south, and you know, I was thinking after I made this, I probably should have included Jerusalem. It's quite a bit further south, though. Uh, I wanted to give you an idea, now that uh, we've recovered our PowerPoint ability, uh, thanks in, in, in large part to Wade, who uh, gave us his other computer, uh, and I wanted you to see what Nazareth looks like today. Uh, I have some pictures at the end, too, and that way when you're dozing off, it'll help wake you up a little bit. But you can see by the cliffs in the forefront that it's a very uh, hilly, I, I don't think mountainous is the right word, but a pretty hilly region. And uh, I, I, that little arrow there is a speculation. I didn't put that there, but the guy that was writing about this chapter felt like that was the approximate location of the synagogue. Uh, there are a lot of hills, a lot of cliffs that they could have thrown Jesus off of. They didn't have to take him all the way down to these big bluffs here. I don't know if you can see it very well, but from the tip of that, that little arrow there where they think the synagogue may have been, uh, right in front of that is a high-rise building. So uh, obviously the high-rise wasn't there in Jesus' day. They could have just taken him right out back and thrown him off that cliff if they'd have, if they'd have wanted to. Uh, but it's a hill country, and when it talks about, I'll, I, I probably won't get to this at the end, but I have some statistics here. I just know you love statistics. Uh, Nazareth is 1,200 feet above sea level, and he's going to walk, the Bible says, down to Capernaum. Capernaum is 686 feet below sea level. So <laughs> you get an idea. I don't know. I don't know how it made out in the flood, you know, that low, but uh, they said in order to land a plane in that valley, you have to get a special altimeter that can read below sea level to get down low enough to land. You know, most of the time you set your altimeter for landing at however many feet above sea level your particular airport is so that your, your altimeter knows when you're about to touch down. But if you go down to zero on a normal altimeter, you're still almost 700 feet above the runway. So it's a really kind of a strange experience probably to fly a plane in that, in that valley in there. Anyhow, we pick up our passage today. Uh, 
and the septa didn't pick it up. Wake up in there. Well, come on, cooperate. Uh, and we're picking up at the end. Last time I was able to speak to you two weeks ago, we talked about uh, the, the, the temptation of Christ. And this week we're going to look at uh, when he goes home. Uh, for the first time, after uh, after almost a year of ministry. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And we know uh, that a lot of things happened between the temptation and the devil leaving off. And we know there's, uh, you know, we, we, we know there are other times that we, we're clear in the scriptures that the devil attacked Jesus. One, of course, was with Peter trying to talk him out of the cross. Another was... In, in, uh, with the Pharisees, where Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. And finally, we know the Bible speaks of the devil coming and tempting him in the Garden of Gethsemane. I can't say that word, Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Somewhere along the line, I've learned how to say that word. You know. Now, Satan's goal, of course, was to stop Jesus from the cross, uh, to keep him from going to that point where he pays for our sins. And each time, we know that Satan failed. But between this first temptation and this experience in Nazareth, all these events happened, and I'm pretty sure that on the Internet you can't read this, but I'll read it for you. Uh, uh, right after his baptism, there was this initial call of uh, Peter and Andrew, and then he went and was tempted in the wilderness. And then we know from John chapter 2 that he changed the water into wine. And uh, we know uh, the first cleansing of the temple at his first Passover, his first year of ministry. Uh, happened also in John chapter 2. It was also in John chapter 3 that Jesus uh, shares the gospel with Nicodemus, and we believe at some point along the line Nicodemus becomes a believer. Jesus and John the Baptist are found baptizing in the Jordan countryside in John chapter 3. I, I was thinking about this. Why is it that Luke left out so much of John's early writings about the ministry of Jesus? I don't have an answer for that, but I, of course I have my own speculations that uh, it's possible at the time of this writing, uh, at the time that Luke sat down, and you know many people believe that uh, Luke, the book of Luke and the book of Acts were actually all written by Luke, and that they were written as a trial document, and at the time of the writings, I'm, this is pure speculation on my part, it's possible that he did not have access to talk to John that John might have been living in a different part of the world. And we also know, uh, well, we think, that the book of the Revelation was John's first writing, and the gospel of John was John's last. So it's entirely possible that this, this writing of Luke was as much as 30 years before John wrote his gospel. And unless he'd had access to John, Luke would have no way to add this information in. Hence, there's a large period of time between the temptation, the baptism, the temptation, and this experience that Luke is going to write about in, uh, in Nazareth. Uh, where was it? I got lost here. Okay, Jesus and John the, Baptist are found, uh, John the Baptist are found baptizing in the wilderness in John chapter 3. And then Herod puts John in prison, which Luke, actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention Herod putting John the Baptist in prison. And you'll notice up there it says Jesus leaves for Galilee. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Uh, it's, it, I, don't, I don't know if you recall this. Uh, Chuck Missler points it out to me. Uh, right in the middle of Herod's uh, town, hometown. I mean, his tetrarchy, they call it there. Actually, three leaders that divided up the country. Uh, 
there, there should be four with a tetrarch, but there were three. And uh, Jesus, when John is locked up, moves his ministry from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is right in Herod's headquarters. And then as I was thinking about that this week, why would he do that? And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there is, Chuck speculates he was kind of snubbing his nose at Herod, but I don't think so. I just wonder if Jesus wanted to be close to John in case John had any needs. Now, I don't, I, I, I've read, I don't know if it's true, but I've read that you could starve to death in one of those prisons, and it's possible that Jesus wanted to be close enough that if John had needs, he could get them into the dungeon where John was being kept. I don't know that. But it's interesting that right after Herod locks up John, his cousin, Jesus moves his ministry to that part of the world. Now, when he leaves Jerusalem to go back to Galilee, that's where he walks through, through Samaria and stops at Sychar and speaks to the woman at the well and actually opens the gospel to the Samaritans. Uh, he arrives in Galilee, heals an official son in John chapter 4, settles in Capernaum, and then walks the, uh, what I say, 40 miles up to Nazareth where... Uh, on a Sabbath day, they tried, they literally tried to try to kill Jesus. Uh, and the, the scriptures tell us that Jesus returned in the power. Now, there are two words for power in the Bible that are significant to us. One is dunamis, which we get our word dynamite from. And one is exousia in the Greek, which we get our word excellency or authority from. So in this case, it's talking about the inherent uh, explosive power of the Holy Spirit, the energy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. There went about the fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified at all. So after a year and a half of public ministry, his reputation is growing by leaps and bounds. And there's some that I did not include here, but you can go back and read those passages of the early years where they, Jesus would go to a town and visit that town, and they'd bring all the sick of the town. And the Bible say he healed them all. It isn't like, you know, uh, you go to a healing service and two people come forward and one person gets healed. In Jesus' day, he healed them all. He was, he was wicked famous by the time he got back into the Galilean area, and that's the point that I'm trying to make. By the time he gets back home in Nazareth, sort of an adopted home, born in Bethlehem, uh, spent a number of years in Egypt, and then went back to Nazareth, which is where his father was, I guess you'd say his stepfather, had his business set up. Uh, but by the time he got back there, his reputation is widespread, and everyone is thinking, wow, what's, what's he going to do? They were all anxious to see signs and miracles in his life. Uh, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood forth to read. He had a habit of going to public worship. Even as a kid, he would go to the synagogue. Uh, the synagogue system was set up first in, in, in Babylon, and they, they began going to synagogue regularly after the Babylonian experience. And Jesus, Jesus would uh, try to avoid missing a Sabbath day, which for them began on Friday night and ended on what we call Saturday night. That was their Sabbath. He kept that habit up as a grown man. And of course, the more famous he got, the more he had opportunities when he walked into a synagogue to actually get to speak. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. 
One of the commentators, and I, you know, I'm, I'm often referring to Missler, uh, A.T. Robertson, and uh, Jamison Fawcett Brown, and I don't remember which one, but I think it was A.T. Robertson said it. he didn't know whether he wasn't sure whether the 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 ruler of the synagogue opened the scroll. I mean, he went and got the scroll of Isaiah, and he he handed it to Jesus, but but. Uh, I think it was A.T. Robinson. He said, wasn't sure whether that was the reading for the week, which would be interesting if it was, if that was the particular reading for the week, or whether Jesus himself was just handed the scroll and looked it up himself. But as I, I underlined, he, I underlined that he found the place. It sort of refers back to Jesus. He was delivered uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place. So it sounded to me like Jesus himself found that particular spot. This is very significant when he goes home. Now, think of the anticipation and the excitement and everyone wondering what this guy's going to say. I mean, they knew him as a little kid. Uh, it's very, very hard to go home. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. As a new believer, any, I, you know, I was, I, I was trying to find a way to the best exemplify Christianity to my family, and it seemed like the harder I tried every single time I went home, the more I miserably failed at being a Christian. And, and the more I tried to show patience or, or self-control or any of the fruits of the Spirit, the worse it got. And I, I have to say, through no effort or experience of my own, God has graciously moved through so many of my family members that it's remarkable how uh, God has, in fact, saved so many of them absolutely nothing that I did because the harder I tried, the worse the worse I failed when I went home. I, I would pray, Lord, help, help me not to make a mess of this. And it was like I made a mess of it anyway. And I, I know it's very stressful to go home and be around family members who are unbelievers. And this is the situation Jesus finds himself in. You know, my family knew me as a long-haired hippie motorcyclist. And to show up in a suit and be leading a funeral for one of the family members had to be it had to be as hard on them as it was on me, but I was mostly focused on how painful it was for me, and I, I can empathize with this. Uh, it, it's weird to go home after you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, having lived a life of uh, debauchery and uh, embarrassed everything that your parents ever tried to get you to do. I, d I don't think Jesus fit that description at all. So he finds this place, it says. He found the place. He, this is a scroll. I don't know how long the scroll of Isaiah is, but he had to unroll it. And as he unrolls one side, he rolls up the other side. So he's, he's looking for this passage. And he said, do I have it up there? No, I don't. Let me put it up there for you. Sorry. And he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You know, uh, I, I don't know how they reacted to that at first. I think they probably were first amazed, and then they got angry. Who does he think he is? You know, you look at this thing. You know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel. Now, yeah, we could we could say that. I could say that. I could get up in front of my family and say that. But to heal the brokenhearted, deliverance to the captives, and recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, nah, that's way beyond anything I'm able to do. 
There are those in our world that want to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. I don't know. I don't think this is the first time, but I haven't really studied the, the chronology of it. But this may very well be the first time he ever told the world that he was the Messiah because this passage, ever since Isaiah wrote it in 800 B.C., was always considered to be a Messianic passage. Any Jew that knew anything about the Old Testament Scriptures would understand that this is a Messianic claim. For those in the synagogue that day, this little, this little Jesus now grown up is claiming to be the Messiah. They understood that. Now, they'd heard a lot of stories about his power and his healing, and they don't know what's going on. But it's hard for them to separate in their minds this kid that, that they used to see playing in the streets or this, this young man that would actually come and work at their house or build them a piece of furniture if he was, in fact, a cabinet maker. We really don't know whether he would, they call him a carpenter, but that's a broad term. Uh, and you know there had to be people in the congregation as there were people in the congregation when I would do funerals at home. Who does he think he is? But what makes him think he's so much better than we are? Why is he here today? And of course, everybody is wondering whether he's going to do any miracles. It's a great passage from Isaiah. Uh, I should have underlined each of those points for you or broken them down. This really describes Jesus' understanding of his mission. And, and I want to take a minute with it because I want you to know that this is his mission. This is why he came. It hasn't changed. It's been 2,000 years. It's still true today. I have come to preach the good news. Now, Paul will later describe or define for us what that good news is. And the good news is that Christ came. God came and took on human flesh and took our sins upon him and went to that cross and died for our sins and was raised again on the third day. That's the gospel. That Jesus took my sins upon himself. But that's just the overview of it. The specifics of it. He came for the specific purpose. He took our sins to that cross, died in our place, and was raised in order that he could heal the brokenhearted deliver the captive, recover sight to those that are blinded, set at liberty those that are bruised, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is why he came, and this is what he does. His mission has not changed since Jesus first spoke those words. Has the difficulty and pain of life broken your heart as it has so many millions in our world? We can find, you can find healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens every day across our world when some brokenhearted person turns from themselves, looks up at the Lord Jesus Christ and says, forgive me of my sins, come into my life and heal me, and their broken hearts are healed. He's been doing this day in and day out for 2,000 years, and it's still going on. I experienced that 50 years ago. Has sin held you as a slave, as a prisoner in its grasp, and you couldn't break free? Are you blinded by your addictions? There's freedom in Jesus Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
I'll never forget that night laying in my bed where I spoke out and I said, Lord, if this is true, let it be true for me. And my life changed instantaneously that night. Of course, I fell asleep. I didn't know my life was changing. But when I woke up in the next morning, I knew everything was different. My whole relationship to sin was gone. The bondage that I had was broken. And that's what he says. I've come to deliver the captives. He has been doing this ever since the day he raised from the grave. There is freedom in Jesus Christ. Do you find yourself or do you have a neighbor or a friend whose life has been crushed by the events of just being alive on this earth? Millions have found healing and help in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's it's so slow. I'm watching move through families in this church over the years, and I watch him move through my own family, and it's so slow, you don't really recognize what's happening. Usually you have to be in a revival where, where you know, five or six or eight or ten people are all getting saved at the same time, because most of the time in our experience, it's one here, and then four or five months later it's one there, and then six or eight months later it's someone here, and we don't see the radical changes that come in the lives of those individuals because it's all so slow from our viewpoint. But the fact is, this mission of Jesus Christ to heal the brokenhearted, to deliver the slaves, to give sight to the blind, to give freedom to those that are crushed or bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, this is what he does. And it's easy as a believer for me to forget it. You know, someone will sit down and they'll be talking about their problems and I'll get all wrapped up in their problems and I'm trying to think of some advice on how I can help them or how I can do this or how they could actually make a change in their life. And I forget that, that this is what Jesus does. This is his mission. And we don't want to lose sight of it. This is why he came. This is it. Millions have found healing and help by calling on the name of Jesus Christ. It was true when he walked on this earth and it's been true ever since. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And really, I know we sound like crazy people when we tell people that. You know, I remember sitting in that pickup truck with my brother-in-law, who at this point I think is still an unbeliever, and saying to him, you know, Bob, his name's Bobby. Everybody in my family's name Bobby. I said, Bobby, you know, uh, he had just left his wife and his family was all broken apart, and, and it was just a mess. His whole life was an absolute mess. And I tried to say, Bobby, you know, Jesus can help. And he said, I want to do it on my own. He can't. It's been 50 years. He hasn't been able to do it on his own yet. It's sad. The answer is Christ. The problem is, it's, we forget it. We're so used to being saved now. We're so used to calling on Christ ourselves. We're so used to how... how how wonderfully and completely he's changed us, we, we forget to share that with others. But the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he came for. And in verse 19, I separated that one out because I wanted to talk about it to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, if you were Jewish, you would hear that as the promise of the Jubilee year. Now, the Jubilee year is found in Leviticus 25. I'm, I'm not going to go back there and read it, but it's a great little study. God had this idea that you would work 49 years and then the year of Jubilee would come. And uh, a lot of things would happen on the Jubilee year, uh, but 
most importantly, if you were a slave, you would be set free. If you were a prisoner, you would be set free. If your property had to be sold because of property, uh, because of poverty, that property would come back to the original families. Uh, you couldn't really sell your land in Israel. I don't know if they still follow that rule today, but you really couldn't in Jesus' day sell your land. The best you could do would lease it, and you, you couldn't lease it for more than 49 years because on the 50th year, the year Jubilee, it all comes back to you. Now, I don't know if the Jews ever celebrated the year-long uh, Jubilee. Uh, I don't know. I understood that they never celebrated the year off to where they didn't grow crops, and that's one of the reasons they spent those years in Babylon, because... God wanted to give the land rest. But I don't know if they ever set the prisoners free. I don't know if the land ever was restored to the right owners. I don't know what the Jews did. But for those of us who understand Jesus' missions, this verse declares something. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. When I read that, I hear Jesus saying, this is the year, or I would like to say the period of time, this is the period of time that the doors are open to God. That God is accepting sinners and forgiving them. It's no longer you do well, you keep the law, and God will accept you. Now it is, come unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the acceptable year where we can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse declares in my mind that God is ready for us to forgive, is ready to forgive sinners, to receive us into his home, to find forgiveness and healing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that Chuck Missler likes to point out, <clears throat> excuse me, is that uh, when Jesus was reading this verse from Isaiah 61, he stopped at a comma. Does the yellow show up? I don't know if you guys on the internet can read that again. I may have put too much up there. But this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is Isaiah 61, the same passage that Jesus read, which, by the way, he's reading from the Septuagint, often called the LXX, the 70, uh, because it is said that 70, 70 authors, actually it was 72 authors, that translated the Hebrew into the Greek uh, in, a, in, in about two, 250 a, a B.C., 250 years before Christ. A after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews had really kind of lost their ability to speak Hebrew, and they, they all spoke a, a Babylonian tongue called Aramaic. And uh, so in order to retain their scriptures, they, they translated their scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. Uh, with this writing of the 70, the Septuagint, which is another word for 70. <clears throat> now, as a result, when Jesus came along, everybody was familiar with the Greek. And when, when Jews first started becoming Christians and then Gentiles started becoming Christians, they had a book, they had a Bible that they could all read together. They all read Greek. Very few Jews could read or speak Hebrew, but they could all read Greek. And so this passage in Isaiah, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> this passage in Isaiah is the same passage 
from which Jesus read from the Septuagint. He wasn't reading from the original Hebrew. It was probably pretty unlikely that there was an original Hebrew scroll even in that synagogue. But I, I want you to follow this. Do I have it up there for you? I do. Yes. Okay, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the open of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. And Jesus stopped there. That's the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's his mission. And if he'd read the next phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God, it would have included what we call the tribulation. So my, my point, this is pretty subtle, but it's just curious. It's not wonderfully significant, but it's just kind of cool that this, this is the first year and a half of Jesus' ministry, and he understood that he was going to be rejected, that there was going to be a church age, that time is going to pass, and later on there will come a time where he will be sent back for what's called the day of vengeance of our God. So just right at that comma, you know, Missler likes to point out, not only pay attention to what is being said, but pay attention to what's not said. And it's significant here that Jesus didn't say that. He is coming back. And when he comes back, the door will be closed. You know that door that's to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, where I say in my mind, the, the, the pathway to heaven is open through faith of those in Jesus Christ who put faith in Jesus Christ. When he comes back the next time, the door will be closed. It all hinges at that comma. It's pretty cool. Well, let me go on. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and he sat down and the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Uh, in the Greek, it's hath been fulfilled. Perfect, passive, indicative. This scripture stands fulfilled in your ears. Now, you know, that must have perked up some ears in Nazareth. Because this is a clear claim to Messiahship. These words really, you have to believe in the mind of the Nazareths. Nazarites? How do you say that? The people that lived in Nazareth, you know, it must have been a little bit too good to be true. Verse 42 says, And all bear witness of him. Do I have that up? Yes. All bear witness of him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's little boy? Are you kidding me? How can we accept this high and mighty proclamation by a kid that we saw running around here playing with sticks? You know, we watched him grow up. He put the roof on my house or he fixed my door. A.T. Robinson writes, So the mood of wonder and praise quickly turns with whispers and nods and even scowls to doubt and hostility, a rapid and radical transformation of emotion in this audience. Got to love the way these old people could write, isn't it? Pretty cool. From wonder to skepticism. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus says this to them. I love this passage. And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, <clears throat> physician heal thyself when are they going to say that do you know 
at the cross. And I have to wonder, again, there, there's no one that I know has even written about this, but I have to wonder, were any of the people at this particular synagogue service where Jesus says this to them, were any of them there at the crucifixion? Now, all the men had to be in Jerusalem for Passover. So it's highly likely that there were some people sitting in that little synagogue that day that would two years later be outside of Jerusalem where Jesus is being crucified. And when the religious leaders holler at him and mock him and tell him to heal himself, they'll recognize this prophecy is fulfilled in their ears. See, Jesus knew the future. And I'm sure that as a result, People from Nazareth were saved because of this prophecy. He was surely saying to me, this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever you heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Well, you know, Capernaum was thought of as a Gentile city, which you've seen there done. Do it here. This is your home. And he says this statement that is true for all of us. I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. It's hard to go home as a new believer. It's hard to go home. It's hard to get around your old friends. It really is. Still is. But I tell you the truth. That, <laughs> this is really going to get him in trouble now. But I tell you the truth. Now, now Capernaum, as I say, was, was thought of in their minds as a very sinful and uh, inappropriate place for Jews to live. It wasn't really a Gentile city, but it was named after Gentiles. But I tell you the truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, Jesus said. Elijah. Uh, both Elijah, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha are both mentioned here. Uh, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when a great famine was throughout the land, but none of them was Elias, Elias a lot, we would say Elijah sent, save to Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisus, we call him Elisha, that was the guy that followed Elijah the prophet. And none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, they're saying you should be doing miracles here. And he's referring to them to their Old Testament writings that they knew their history very well. That the, the, the miracle of healing a leper was done by Elisha for a Gentile. And the miracle of feeding in a famine was done by Elijah to a woman who was a Gentile. And I don't know what he's saying to them. You know, I, I think it was Robertson was saying that God will heal who God chooses to heal. That God is in charge and he'll do what he wants to do. I read someone else that said he thought Jesus was saying to them, you don't have any more right to my miracles than another Gentile. You know, that, that you cannot expect just because I'm Jewish and you're Jewish that God is going to treat you differently or that I owe you anything. I really don't know what they thought, but they didn't like whatever thoughts were crossing through their minds. They didn't like this upstart that grew up in their hometown telling them, well, don't forget, you know, God goes to Gentiles and he does miracles there too. Even when he's not doing miracles here, it made him angry. I'll say. It was too much for them. And all they, 
<coughs> in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. <coughs> Jesus is saying God will bless who he wants to bless. You can't tell me what to do. You can't assume. Now, Robertson writes at the southwest corner of the town of Nazareth stood such a cliff today. <coughs> I think I'm at, I'm at the end. <coughs> I think I'm at the end of my voice. And, and Robertson writes that by just in mass walking him out the building and, and forcing him off of the cliff that somehow they'd escape the guilt of murdering this guy. A.T. writes he wanted to escape technical guilt. I, I don't see it that way. I think it was just a mob scene. And they were so upset. They wanted to kill him. If there had been a tree around, they would have tried to lynch him, but they didn't have a tree, so they decided here they have a cliff. And verse 30 reads, <coughs> did I skip it? Oh, I skipped it. Let's go on down a little bit here. Oh, there it is. I put it at the end. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. We don't know what that means. He seemed to have the ability to just go wherever he wanted to go. This happens numerous times in his experience. He seemed to just disappear. He, I don't think he disappeared. I think he just blinded them to his presence. But And he came down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and taught them, which we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. I wanted to share this with you. This is on the outskirts of present city of Nazareth where they think uh, is a synagogue that dates back to Jesus' day. Now, they, these are archaeologists and, and helpers that are sitting there. And they, they haven't got the whole thing excavated yet. How does that show up? And I guess, yeah, you can see that. They haven't got the whole thing excavated yet, but you can see it's actually very small. And, and those rocks that they're sitting on, they're limestone cut for the purpose of seats. So if you think these pews are bad, and they are, uh, the limestone is even worse. Uh, and they're, they're actually showing you how they'd be sitting around the synagogue. And you can also see that there's a cliff right behind them. You know, so whether or not this is the actual site of the synagogue, they don't know. But they do know it's been a couple of thousand years since this particular synagogue was in use. Uh, and I doubt if our church would look any better than that in 2,000 years myself. Uh, and just to give you an idea of the topography there, uh, that, 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 that gives you an idea of the hill on which Nazareth sits. Uh, and off in the distance, you can see the valley below it. 1,200 feet up and 600 feet down. What is that? 1,800 feet differential between the two. A 40-mile walk down to Capernaum. Uh, this guy was saying they took, they took three days. They, they took their sleeping bags and their camping gear and they took three days to make the walk. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus and his crowd would have done it in two. 20 miles a day wouldn't have been that unusual. But 
you know if you're hiking around this kind of an area here, you're in pretty good physical shape. I mean, if I had to do that, I would need six months. So uh, these guys, uh, no bus service in those days. It really tells you something about the ground in which they lived. Well, Lord, thank you for this time together and this chance to just get a glimpse into the life of our Lord Jesus Christ who walked all those dusty miles to share the story that he can actually help us who suffered and died in our place so that we could find freedom and liberty in Christ. And we thank you for that, Father. And Father, for our friends and neighbors that don't know the truth, help us to find opportunity to share with them that Jesus is, in fact, the answer to all our problems. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.